Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Truth Shall Set You Free, Nyaya on the Mind. At this point, we have a pretty good understanding of Gautama's epistemology. He insists in the face of the various skeptical arguments making the rounds in ancient India that we can indeed have knowledge. We get it through various means of knowing, most fundamentally sense perception, as well as argumentative inferences which Gautama and his fellow Nyayikas have rigorously analyzed. What isn't as clear, so far, is which things Gautama actually believes we can know. The endless talk of fires on the mountainside might seem relevant, but only if you're a forest ranger, in which case avoiding tigers and trees may also come in handy. But the theory will really earn its stripes when we come to philosophical understanding. What do Gautama's vaunted sources of knowledge tell us about the structure of the world around us and about ourselves? This is not something the Nyaya school simply outsourced to their more metaphysically-minded colleagues in Samkhya and Vaisheshika. Gautama, too, offers us an enumeration of the things we can know. But if this is a list of metaphysical categories, it's one that is characteristic of Gautama, whose primary interests are epistemology and liberation. Of the twelve items he names, half of them have to do mostly with psychology and the nature of human beings, the other half with ethics and karma. In the first group are the self, the mind, the body, the sense faculties, the objects of the senses, and finally, the various sorts of mental states and events. Notice that only one thing on that list lies outside of the human knower, and even it is defined with reference to human knowledge, a catch-all category for things that are available to the senses. Then the second group includes motivation, evil, rebirth, the fruits of action, suffering, and finally, the destination towards which Gautama's philosophy finally leads, liberation. Let's have a closer look at the items on this list, first exploring Gautama's understanding of the human subject, and then turning to the promise of ultimate freedom. After all, if we started with that, you might not bother listening to the rest of the episode. As with his treatment of knowledge, Gautama's discussion of the self, mind, and so on, is developed with an eye towards responding to and refuting other schools. As usual, the Buddhists serve as one target, since they refuse to accept the reality of an enduring self. Gautama is also concerned with the sort of reductionism espoused by the Charvaka philosophers. As we'll see later in the series, this group of thinkers believe that mental experiences emerge from an entirely material basis. Against these opponents, Gautama argues for the existence of the ingredients that make up the human, insisting in particular that the self is not to be identified with the collection of body, sense faculties, mental processes, and so on, and also that there is a difference between Atman and Manas, which we may translate as self and mind. Gautama goes the mind-body dualism of Descartes one better, proposing that we each have a self in addition to a mind and body. Or is this going Descartes one worse? After all, most philosophers nowadays are pretty skeptical about positing a mind distinct from the body, never mind a further self that is distinct from the mind, and these philosophers are, according to informal surveys, not even Buddhists. So Gautama has a lot of arguing to do if he's going to persuade us or his opponents. Fortunately, arguments are what he does best. 
let's begin with his case for positing the self. He contends that the self is needed to serve as the subject of mental states like beliefs and desires, pleasures and pains. Clearly, if there is a belief or a desire, there must be someone to do the believing and desiring. When there is pleasure and pain, there must be someone to enjoy the good times and to suffer through the bad times. Actually, we've seen this argument already. It was Vatsyayana's illustration of arguments that go from generalities to particular instances, rather than from cause to effect or effect to cause. The Buddhists doubted that the self could be discovered through any kind of causal inference, often repeating the point that the self does not show up when we go in search of it as if it were one more thing in the world. Anticipating this line of argument, Gautama proposes the self as something more like a theoretical entity, something that is not observed in itself, but rather hypothesized to explain the things that we can observe. This fits into a wider pattern in Nyaya Vaisheshika. The self is often proven without any appeal to ideas of cause and effect. Just like the Nyaya Sutra, the Vaisheshika Sutra mentions that beliefs and pains are qualities. After all, they can hardly be substances in their own right, nor would they fit into any of the other metaphysical categories recognized in Vaisheshika, like motions or universals. But if beliefs and desires are qualities, then there must be something to which they belong. Qualities don't float around free on their own, like ontological balloons that have been cut loose. The subject or substrate to which mental qualities are tied is, of course, the self. This argument illustrates a second kind of non-causal reasoning discussed by Nyaya, namely argument by process of elimination. A belief or desire is neither a substance, nor a universal, nor a motion, and so on, and so can only be a quality. Yet another type of argument, which may have seemed to you rather strange the first time we mentioned it, is the negative example. You might support the claim that smoke indicates fire by alluding to water in a lake where both smoke and fire are absent. This same strategy is used in Nyaya for proving the self. In inanimate objects, mental events like beliefs and desires are absent because a self is also absent. In our case, by contrast, the mental qualities and the self are found together, like smoke and fire. It seems then that one reason the Nyaya school was so interested in cataloging different kinds of argument is that they wanted to give themselves tools for establishing the existence of the self. Hardly surprising, since this school is heir to the earlier Vedic tradition and thus committed to the proposition that we should seek for self-knowledge above all else. Another way to argue for the self is found in the commentator Vatsyayana, who pulls together scattered ideas found in Gautama to mount the following demonstration. In addition to serving as the subject for individual mental states, the self also integrates mental states that occur at different times. I might have a desire for an almond croissant, but only because I have experienced croissants in the past. Without a self that endures over time, how could I recognize anew something I experienced before, a recognition that allows me to realize that this would be just the thing to have along with my coffee? The same sort of argument is used within the Nyaya theory of karma. If I am rightly made accountable for my past actions, for instance the eating of too many croissants, which is punished by being reincarnated as a Frenchman, then the person who receives the karmic fruits of the actions must be the same person who performed those actions. Surely this implies that one and the same self is both the agent of the original act and the recipient of reward and punishment. 
Appropriately enough, this karmic theory will return again later in today's episode. The argument about recognition trades on the fact that different mental events happen for the same person at different times. But you can also run the argument with multiple events happening at the same time. This may be more effective against the Buddhists, who could always deal with recognition or memory by claiming that sequential events cause one another in a chain, with no enduring self needed to bind them together. So, Gautama asks us to consider a case like this. Imagine that you're looking at Janardin's pet crocodile, Gina, who is basking in the mud at the side of the river. He's raised her from birth, so she's quite tame and you can safely pat her on the back. When you do, you're perceiving one and the same object, Gina, through both vision and touch. You could think to yourself, I touch the crocodile that I see. How could you be doing this if there is no single judge to compare the deliverances of the different senses? Furthermore, since it stands over vision, hearing, touch, and so on, this judge must be distinct from all of them. It is nothing other than yourself, which is distinct from sensation. So there you have it, or rather, there you have the self. But as we said, Gautama thinks you are more than a body and a self. You also have manas, or mind. The Nyaya Sutra assigns two distinct roles to the mind. It is both a kind of internal sense and a faculty of attention. Why do we need to postulate an internal sense in addition to the more familiar external senses that you used while hanging out with Gina the crocodile? Well, you have mental processes that are completely interior, like wondering whether fraternizing with a crocodile is such a good idea, or having a dream about being attacked by a tiger. You can also have an internal awareness of your own mental states, by reflecting on what you are perceiving, desiring, and so on. All of this goes on behind stage, as it were, and cannot be observed by anyone else or through your own sense organs. According to Gautama, this shows that there must be an internal sense whose role is to perceive inner happenings, and this is the mind, a faculty of introspection, something like an inner monitor. But hang on a moment, why can't the self do this job? After all, it is not identical with the senses either, and it is supposedly the subject of mental life. Gautama argues, though, that the mind is very much like a sense faculty, different simply in that its activity is inward rather than outward. The self is the underlying agent and subject of this activity for which it uses mind as an instrument. The argument turns on an observation made in Panini's grammar, namely that an agent of an action is distinct from the instrument with which the action is performed. You don't need to know Sanskrit to get the point. Show off again with your Latin, and consider the distinction between nominative and dative case endings. Sanskrit grammarians mark the contrast by saying that the agent is an independent causal factor, whereas the instrument is dependent on the agent. If we say, Janardin leads Gina with a leash, clearly Janardin is not identical with the leash, but with the agent who is using the leash. The same holds for inner mental states. Yourself is the agent that thinks or dreams about a crocodile using your mind, just as yourself uses the outer senses to see or touch the crocodile. Some philosophers think that the self has immediate or transparent access to the contents of its interior awareness, that you need no special faculty to discover what you are thinking, believing, desiring, and so on. This would make the activity of thinking about Gina very different from the activity of seeing Gina. 
In the case of seeing, it's obvious that you're using an instrument, namely your sense faculty, and other conditions must also be satisfied. For instance, Gina has to be illuminated and not hiding in the river. By contrast, you might suppose, the self has a privileged and unmediated access to its own thoughts and other internal mental activities. But even though Gautama and other Nyaya thinkers agree that each person's interior mental life is private, available to that person alone, they disagree that mental activity is transparent to the self. The reason you have privileged access to your thoughts is that your internal monitor can monitor only your own particular mental life. Jinardin can't use his mind to be aware that I am thinking of a giraffe, nor can I use my mind to be aware that Jinardin is dreaming of crocodiles. Then there is the mind's second function, which is to be a faculty of attention. Here, at least according to Gautama, we have a striking difference between external sensation and the mind. We were just noticing that the sense faculties can operate simultaneously, as when you see and touch the same thing at the same time. But awareness is not like this. There is only one successive flow of thought, which can direct itself to only one object of awareness at a time. So there must be an additional factor in the production of awareness, working something like a switch, selecting one stream of inner experience at a time for the self to appreciate. This is a remarkable proposal. It makes Gautama perhaps the first figure in the history of philosophy to formulate what is sometimes called the bottleneck or filter theory of attention. But is it really true that the self is able to enjoy experience only sequentially and in a stream rather than all at once, in a single burst of awareness fed by multiple sources at the same time? Don't we in fact often find that two or more mental events happen at the same time, like remembering a crocodile while thinking of a giraffe? Gautama thinks not. Though we may sometimes seem to have multiple simultaneous cognitions, this is a mere illusion caused by the rapid succession of distinct awareness, just as whirling fire on a rope looks as if it is a single continuous circle of flame. In some cases, apparent simultaneity is due to the existence of ongoing subconscious processes, as when we understand the meaning of a sentence on hearing its separate words. We hear the words one after the other, but seem to understand the meaning of the whole sentence in a flash. For Gautama, this experience is again nothing but an illusion, one that, as you may remember, convinced the grammarian Bhatrihari that such sudden grasping of a whole is indeed the way that we comprehend language. Gautama's idea of selective awareness faces another problem, though. If I need to use my mind to attend deliberately to my senses, for example by deciding to listen to the sounds around me, how could I ever be aware of something without first choosing to listen? This can't be right. When a tiger leaps unexpectedly out of the jungle at me with a tremendous roar, I certainly have a big problem, but the problem isn't that I don't hear the tiger. Rather, the sudden loud noise forces me to attend to it. The objection is noted in the Nyaya Sutra, but not answered satisfactorily. A possible answer might be that the mind is constantly engaged in a subconscious process of scanning for potential input from the senses. But if so, then it must be doing this even while we're asleep, since otherwise alarm clocks wouldn't work. Where exactly in this model of the human subject does consciousness reside? The answer is clear, in the self. For the self is the subject of conscious mental states like believing and perceiving. But this seems rather strange. Why would anyone deny that the mind can also be the conscious subject of mental states? It seems even harder to swallow than I would be for a tiger. 
but consider that if I already have a conscious self and the mind too is conscious, then I would have two centers of consciousness. My inner life would be split in half between the mind and the self. Gautama avoids this by insisting that mind as such is not conscious. Again, mind is not the agent of thinking, but its instrument. So it is dependent on the agent that uses it, the self, and cannot act independently. The mind directs attention, but this does not amount to full-blown consciousness, which can reside only in the Atman, the self. Yet another argument for the same conclusion invokes the doctrine of karma. A basic premise of traditional karma theory is that we all enjoy or suffer the results of our own actions. Nothing that I do can make you better or worse off in karmic fruits. But if we suppose that the self and the mind were two independent subjects of consciousness, exactly this would happen. The mind's actions could have moral consequences for the self. This may seem a strange idea, with moral responsibility being shifted between two separate agents within the same person. But of course, the point is precisely that the mind cannot be a morally responsible agent, and that supposing it to be an agent would lead to precisely this absurd result. Notice that the argument doesn't actually require us to believe in reincarnation or karma as such. Anyone who thinks that we do bear moral responsibility for our past actions will want to ensure that moral responsibility belongs to a single agent for each person, not two or more agents. Gautama, though, certainly does believe in karma. This brings us to the final topic we want to look at in his Nyaya Sutra, Liberation. We've mentioned that the whole Nyaya theory of knowledge, with its pramanas, prameyas, its various accounts of argument, inference, and debating procedure, all this is meant to yield attainment of the highest good. In the second sutra, Gautama explains how this is supposed to happen, how, that is to say, the study of philosophy leads to liberation. It all has to do with the relationship between beliefs and actions. It seems evident that actions stem from beliefs along with desires. If I succeed in the action of patting a crocodile fondly on its spiny back, it is because I have a desire to pat a crocodile and true beliefs about what crocodiles look like, where to find them, and how best to go about patting them on the back. But actions are not just successful or unsuccessful, they can also be good or bad. The moral quality of an action, claims Gautama, depends on the desire that gives rise to that action. It is malicious desire that causes bad action which is not to say that beliefs are always innocent. They do not only guide actions and help them succeed, but actually give rise to the desires that motivate actions. True beliefs cause benevolent desires, false ones malicious desires. If you believe that wealth is worth more than friendship, you might steal a crocodile from your friend Janarden to sell on the black market. Having true beliefs is paramount, which means we have every reason to seek a proper understanding of Nyaya philosophy. For it teaches us the reliable sources of true belief and the difference between sound arguments and spurious ones. Effectively, it is a tool for avoiding false belief. No false beliefs means no wicked desires, no wicked desires means no bad actions, and no bad actions means no punishment through karma further down the line. With this final step, Gautama is signaling his acceptance of the traditional idea that every action I perform has a future effect on me, Character is destiny. If the action I perform is good, the effect will be pleasurable, whereas if the action is wicked, the effect will be painful, in a broad and all-encompassing sense of these terms. 
The point is that things will either go well for me or else badly, and either way, I will be reaping what I have sowed. And it gets even better. Not only will truth give you good karmic rewards, it will set you free. Gautama defines the highest good, or liberation, as the absence of suffering, the complete elimination of all forms of distress. There could be many ways of realizing such a state, insofar as there are many forms of life in which pain does not feature. But to reach this happy condition, we must avoid committing bad actions and so avoid bad desires by, again, avoiding false beliefs. In other words, we must study the Nyaya Sutra and implement its teachings carefully. For Gautama, there is a direct link between our rational aim, which is to believe truth and nothing but the truth, and the moral imperative to do good and avoid evil. For all the technical sophistication of Nyaya logic and epistemology, the teaching of this school is, as so often in Indian philosophy, really an answer to the question of how best to live. If that doesn't give you reason to stay with us for one more episode on Nyaya, perhaps nothing would. But just in case, we'll mention that the next installment will be a very special one, the first ever interview on this podcast series, which features a married couple. We'll be joined by Ujwala Jha and VN Jha, who have made huge contributions to the study of Nyaya philosophy in modern-day India. That's next time here on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah.